We have uh, two Bible readings this morning. The first one is on page 652 in the Bibles that you may have been handed out. And it comes from Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. And it's about Israel's restoration. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord. And the second reading is from John, which is on page 751. It's chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, when Jesus changes water to wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus, his disciples, had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water so they are filled to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. I feel like I, uh, I need to admit something straight up. Wedding receptions are not one of my favourite things. Now, I like the ceremonies. I love doing weddings. I just find wedding receptions are sometimes a, a bit of a letdown. I don't know if you know what I mean or not, but you know, all that effort, all that preparation, and for what? Speeches that go too long. Bride and groom who won't go home so you can get to bed. Okay, you've probably started to pick it up. I'm sometimes known as a little bit of a party pooper. And I am a bit. I deserve that. Today we're looking at a wedding that Jesus goes to, and I think it's, it's fair to say that most people think of God as a bit of a party pooper. But unlike me, God doesn't deserve that. In fact, when we think of God like that, we couldn't be getting him more wrong. Just before we look at what happens when Jesus turns up at a wedding, let me, let me remind you of what John's doing in this whole book. Remember, right at the end of the book, John tells us he's writing down some of the signs he saw. 
Mike Sams, he, uh, see Mike, I got, I got your name right, have you noticed? He, he's written for us a great summary, which you'll see up on your screen in a second, of what signs are. And many of, many of us have seen this in our community groups. Signs are physical actions, like turning water into wine, that point to a spiritual reality and a time when all will be fulfilled. And this is for the purpose that John writes in 2031, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, today we see the first of Jesus' signs. We see something that happened in his first week of ministry. What do you expect of Jesus one week in? It's something, it'd be something pretty big, wouldn't it? John only records six signs for us, so you'd expect the first one to really blow you away. Well, we see today that Jesus does do a miraculous sign, but if you stop and think about it, is it really what you'd expect? In a little backwater town, in front of only a few servants, a few disciples and mum, Jesus turns water into wine. How does that show who he is and, and what he's on about? How does that blow us away? You might have even seen uh, that Rowan Atkinson skit where he pays this out, where the servants ask Jesus if he also does kids' parties, like um, Miraculous Mike or whatever his, Magnificent Mike or whatever his name was. See, for the, ser- for the servants in Rowan Atkinson's skit, it's kind of like a cool party trick, but it's hardly mind-blowing. Well, let me tell you why this sign's here right up front and why it's, it's not like that. The first reason that it's here right up front is because it actually happened. This is the way it happened. John is an eyewitness. He testifies to what he saw. So even, this might, even though this might seem like a strange way to start to us, it just reinforces that what we're reading is not someone making stuff up. This is someone writing down what happened. But the second reason why it's here right up front is because if we understand this sign right, we'll see that what it points to is, is no small thing. This isn't a neat party trick. This is a sign that if you're looking, will point you to the very heart of God. It gives you a, a taste of who God is and what he's on about. Now John, of course, thinks he's put it in exactly the right spot. Have a look at verse 11, which... Mike brought up for the kids before. He writes, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Do you see that? The disciples saw the spiritual reality. They saw the awesome future that this sign points to, and they believed in Jesus. Well, let's see if if we can see what they saw. Verse 1. John writes, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, John's setting the scene for us here. It's about six days into Jesus' ministry. The wedding's at Cana, we read. It's a little place. It's, It's very close to Nazareth. The first guest 
who's mentioned is actually Jesus' mother. And that means this is probably the wedding of a family friend or, or a relative of Mary and Jesus. We don't know the exact details, like why the disciples are there too, but it's okay. We know that they're invited, they weren't gate crashing. But then there's a problem. Again, we're not told why, but the wine runs out. Now, weddings are a big deal in most cultures. I mean, think about the cost and the the time and the effort that goes into planning weddings these days. Did you know that apparently the average Australian wedding costs $36,000? I've got four kids. I'm already starting to find it hard to sleep at night. I'm wondering if I should start to pray for them, that God would give them the gift of singleness. So Weddings are important to us. Nobody wants their wedding to be remembered as the one where the reception venue messes things up. Well, back in Jesus' time, weddings were just as important, if not more important. And this wedding was about to have a fairly significant problem. At my wedding, we didn't actually have any wine, mostly because we were just poor uni students at that, at that time, at the end of uni. But wine back then was, was critical to weddings. If you look across the Old Testament, you'll see that wine itself symbolises joy and celebration. Now, wine can symbolise other things sometimes too, like wrath and judgment, and sometimes God's covenant blessings, a little bit like what we saw in Amos that was read before. But at a wedding, it was about joy and celebration. This wedding was about to become memorable for all the wrong reasons. Maybe Mary was involved in the catering because she seems to have an inside knowledge. Did you notice that? She seems to know about the problem before many others. And so she says to Jesus in verse 3, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What do you think of Jesus' response? It's strange, isn't it? I mean, he literally says, what's it to me and to you, woman? Now, that sounds rude to us, especially with my eastern coast kind of drawl there. But you'll notice the NIV softens it by saying, dear woman. In actual fact, Jesus isn't being rude here, but neither is he being affectionate. He's kind of being politely distant. He's not going to let his mother set the agenda for his ministry. And the reason he gives is that his time has not yet come. It's not his hour, he says. But what does he mean by that? Is he just saying he's he's not ready yet to, to launch his ministry and perform his first sign? If that's the case, then why does he go ahead and actually do the miracle? Is it just because mum's nagging? Well, no way, that's not Jesus. John introduces us to something critical here. Jesus' hour is really important. See, if Jesus turns water into wine when it's not his hour, it makes you wonder what's going to happen when it is his hour. Across John, we keep reading about Jesus' hour. Until finally in John 12, 23, Jesus says his hour has come. He says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man 
to be glorified. And what does that glory look like? What sort of miraculous sign happens then? Well, he tells us in verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' hour where he'll be glorified is his death. The cross doesn't look like glory. It looks like humiliation, and and it is. But that God brings mercy and justice together perfectly, that's his glory. That God doesn't let evil and death win, that's his glory. That God the Son, the, the eternal word, would face the cross for his people Well, that's his glory. One seed falls to bring a harvest of many. Now, in John, Jesus' hour is the cross. But how does that help us in our passage? Why does Jesus say to his his mother, when she wants him to solve the wine problem, Mum, I'm not going to solve the wine problem. My hour's not here. It's not time for me to die. It doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? Well, not if we frame it like that. But the cross is about Jesus being publicly glorified. The, the hour, his hour, is when he's, he's lifted up on the cross, he says, for all to see, for all the world to see. And what we see there, if we see it properly, is just how glorious God is. What Jesus is saying to Mary is that it's, it's not time for him to be publicly glorified. That happens at the cross. And through the cross, it happens at another day too, at a different wedding. Later in this book, John writes about how Jesus is called the bridegroom. Actually, in the very next chapter, he talks about how Jesus is called by John the Baptist the bridegroom and the people are called the bride. In another book, John writes, he calls the great day when Jesus' glory is completely revealed, Jesus' wedding day. See, there's no way that Jesus is sitting there at that wedding in Cana and not thinking about what's ahead of him. There's no way Jesus is not thinking of both his death and the great celebration that it brings about, the party that lasts forever, when God and his people live side by side, when every pain is gone and every evil is undone. How how can I know so confidently that Jesus is thinking of his wedding day? Well, it's because God says in the Bible that every marriage points to that day. Every marriage points to that day. So when Jesus is asked to intervene, to to step in and save the day for this wedding at Cana, to take the spotlight and miraculously bring about the party, he says, no, this is not my day. This is not my party. But his less than keen response doesn't deter Mary. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She knows Jesus. She knows he's going to help these people out. That's his character. And we read in verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. I've got a couple of pictures. Here's 
a uh, stone jar found in Jerusalem from that era. It's a little bit fancy than this next one, which was found in Cana itself, a stone jar. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Even though Jesus, in a way, said no to Mary, he still helps out this young couple and their family. But did you notice how he does it? Not publicly. He doesn't stand up and take the spotlight of of their wedding, at their wedding. That's for the future. He acts behind the scenes. And the only ones who know that he's done it are the servants, his mum, and a few flabbergasted disciples. But did you notice how much wine Jesus brought into existence? Six stone jars, each containing between 80 to 120 litres of water. I mean, you add it up quickly, that's 600 litres. That's 800 bottles of wine. That's excessive, isn't it? Now, this is not saying that they all got hopelessly drunk or anything silly like that. It's saying that Jesus provides abundantly, excessively. And it's not just about quantity with Jesus. Look at verse 10. The the master of the banquet calls over the bridegroom and he says in verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. It's quantity and quality. Excessive and exceptional. Well, what spiritual reality does this behind-the-scenes glimpse of Jesus point to? Well, it points to the reality that Jesus himself is the true source of joy and celebration. He's the true life of the party, not in a kind of hippie, dreadlocked Jesus kind of way. Jesus is not the king of superficial happiness and a, and a shallow kind of partying. He's the king of unimaginable joy and true celebration. This sign also points to the spiritual reality that Jesus wins this joy and celebration by the cross. Did you notice what the water containers were used for? So John makes a point here in this passage of pointing out to us that they're used for ceremonial washing. Jewish people back then would wash their hands before they ate to make themselves clean, not so much as an issue of hygiene, but to wash away the contamination of all sorts of impure things that they might have come in in contact with. John makes a point of bringing this to our attention because Jesus is going to bring about true purification an abundant and effective washing, more than on the outside. It just occurred to me last night as I was reading the Bible to the kids before bed, and we happened to be reading about how Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John, John's Gospel. You know, he, he strips down to just the towel. He, he's the servant, comes along and washes their feet that are filthy. And Peter says, no way. He says, you're not, you're not going to stoop to that kind of depth for me, that low lowliness. 
And Jesus says to Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. See here in that passage about Jesus washing their feet and, and here with the, with the passage about the wedding at Cana, the washing is, is pointing to the cross. Joy and celebration only comes through purification. Well, what time does this sign point to? What's the time when all will be fulfilled? Well, there's the cross. Yep, we've seen that. But there's more. See, this sign points to what the cross achieves. It points to the harvest. It points to Jesus' own wedding, his day, when he returns and and the world becomes all that it's supposed to be, where there'll be no more pain or suffering or evil, where there'll be true joy and and celebration forever. As you know, and as as you heard before, I uh, previously worked in uni ministry with uni students a lot. And one time at uni, we, we put up posters all around the colleges and the campus And the posters just said, the problem with Christianity is dot, dot, dot. We actually attached pens to the posters as well. It was great. People wrote all sorts of things all all over those posters. Some people even drew pictures. But you know what the top answer was? No fun. The problem with Christianity is there's no fun. Now, maybe that can be true of us Christians. But that can never be true of God. God is the inventor of life. God's the creator of fun. He knows what makes our hearts sing from, from the, the little things. He, he knows what makes us truly content. You know, the things like on a really hot day, jumping into a, a nice cold pool. Or the smell of, of rain. To the big things, like falling in love. Like holding a healthy baby in your arms for the first time. Like a wedding. God not only knows what fills us, what makes us love life, he invented these things. He gave us these things and he keeps on giving us these things. I mean, how much more offensive to him can we get than to think that God's holding back on us? To think that we need to go outside of God to find life. But don't we sometimes think and act like that? Like God is the true party pooper? I mean, I think it's sometimes, it's almost like we think that Jesus, when he was told that the wine was gone, came in and and turned the tables over and and made a a whip and drove those terrible partiers out. But as we've seen, that's not at all what Jesus does. Jesus makes 800 bottles of wine. Sometimes us Christians... We give people good reason to think that God's a killjoy. Occasionally we, we talk about God like he's more of a police officer than the true source of life. And at our worst, we can even act like he's deputies enforcing the rules. But if us Christians are acting like that, and we truly think that God at his heart is first and foremost a rule maker like that, then we've got God wrong. We've missed this sign. We've missed Jesus' glory. Because first of all, right up front, Jesus reveals that God is on about true life. Excessive and exceptional. 
If you're not a believer here today, if you're going to write Jesus off, don't do it because he's not on about life. Jesus is so committed to winning life for us that he laid down his life for us. Do you see what this sign points out to us? It's basically claiming that it's, it's impossible to come to Jesus and not be filled. Even if you're single and you don't want to be, it's impossible that Jesus won't fill you. Even if you're terminally sick, it's impossible that Jesus won't fill you. If you hate your job, unhappy with your kids or, or with your husband or your wife, it's, it's impossible that Jesus won't fill you. It doesn't mean, of course, that God's going to turn your husband or your wife or your kids into 800 bottles of wine. It, does, it doesn't mean we won't stay single or unemployed. But it does mean that Jesus possesses and gives a life that's, that's more potent and that runs deeper, is more real than any of these other things. They can't be drained away by even the, the worst that this world can throw at us. I want to finish today by answering two questions. How do I get this life? And then I want to answer, how do I feel this life when I'm just not feeling it? And the first question, it's easy to answer actually, but it's, it's hard to do. See, how do you get this life? We already saw this from John. He's written down what he saw so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Later on in John, Jesus himself, when he's praying to God, says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, we get this life by coming to Jesus. Giving up our lives and entrusting them to Jesus. Now that, the answer's easy. What's hard is actually doing that. Trusting that Jesus has got you covered. Trusting that Jesus will fill you no matter what this life throws at you. Trusting him to call the shots. Trusting him to satisfy you. It's hard. It's hard, but so many of us here have done that. And so many of us here would love to, if you haven't done that, tell you about why. Just ask us. The answer to the second question is, is actually the same answer in the end. How do I feel like I have this life that Jesus gives me when I'm, when I'm just not feeling it? Well, feelings are fickle. They, they change, it's true. And there's, there's no point really chasing after them. What we need to do is the same as the other answer is come to Jesus. I love the way that, um, that Fix on Sunday afternoon, the youth group, is called Fix. It's called Fix because you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. That's what we need to do too. And more often than not, our feelings will follow. Do you feel like God's ripped you off in this life? Like God's letting life-sucking things happen? Well, it's understandable that we feel that way. And, and God actually wants us to be honest with him about our feelings. But this passage reminds us that we're wrong about God if that's what we believe about him. 
seeing you go through hard times is not the desire of his heart. It's not his destiny for you. And God feels it harder than we do. So hard that he went to the cross for us. Having true life doesn't mean having absolute fun times now in this life. It will mean that one day though. But even on that day, even in heaven, the source of our life won't be those fun times as great as they'll be. The source of our life will be forever knowing Jesus. And that begins for us even now. Think of hardcore mountain climbers. Now, I know I'm using this illustration at danger of thinking that you're obsessed with, that you think that I'm obsessed with mountains. Don't worry, I'll try and slip it into each sermon if I can. Think of hardcore mountain climbers. As they climb the mountain, there's bitter cold and there's pain. It's there, it's real. But it doesn't touch their joy because of their love of, of what they're doing. They can have intense struggle and, and joy at the same time. Well, when, when we know Jesus, whose glory we, we caught just a glimpse of last week, the temporary pain, the, the temporary struggle, it doesn't cut us off from life. Because we personally know the true source of life. We know him. We know him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ into this world and revealing you so clearly. Lord, we thank you for this, this first sign that he did and the way that it, it does blow us away when we see clearly what it points to. That it shows not just his power, but his plan for us. That through the cross, through his pain and suffering, through his sacrifice, he would bring us to complete joy and celebration eternally. Lord, help us to see that nothing else in this life can compare to, to truly knowing Jesus Christ himself. Lord, help us when our feelings don't match up our reality. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to know that life even now as we wait for him to come back and introduce us to the great wedding that's to come where we'll see his glory completely. Lord, help those of us particularly who are struggling with hard things in life at the moment. But Lord, also help those of us who are just cruising along happily to realize that all of us need to fix our eyes on Christ. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.